Bing AI can't be trusted. Alphabet shares dive and recover by 9% after Google AI chatbot Bard flubs answer in ad. JSX could have been two times faster if it was designed more optimally for JavaScript virtual machines. So what's next? Personal news from developer of popular CoreJS Polyfill. Are people considering moving off of Fly.io and full homomorphic encryption primer? I'm Matt Stephen, and you're listening to Deaf Radio. This is where the intro music plays. All right. Welcome. I am joined, as always, by Rick Gorman. How you doing, Rick? Let's hop into it. What uh, what's what's top of mind for you this week, Matt? So the first first story we got today is an article entitled "Bing AI Can't Be Trusted," or "Let's Go to Mexico." So unless unless you've been living under a rock for the past uh, week or so, I actually don't know when they came out with this, but Bing came out with their new uh, chatbot that's essentially ChatGPT with some little prompt uh, some little prompt engineering going on under the hood and people are having a field day with this thing you know I don't know I don't know if I don't know if it's scary or I don't know if it's just like boasting it, it's I'm not quite sure how I feel about this thing right now yeah I know for me like, Anybody that's been following this stuff already knew that Bing AI or Bing Chat, as Microsoft calls it, can't be trusted. And this is an article coming from a guy named Dimitri Brereton. Pardon me if I mispronounced your name. And so he, this is in, I think, closed beta. So not every, not everybody has access to this thing yet, but um, this guy apparently has access and he started testing it out with different queries, pretty run-of-the-mill stuff, um, looking for vacuum cleaners to vacuum up pet hair, things like that. And as you might expect, because it's based on GPT, it kind of just makes up information some of the time. <laughs> what do you mean so, information? The Bissell pet hair eraser handheld vacuum sounds like an obvious product that's out there. So that is a real product, but it kind of, quote unquote, hallucinates details about the product, supposedly. Uh, It talks about how it has a short cord, even though it's a wireless vacuum. Uh, It's loud, apparently. And the website it cites for that information actually says that it's kind of quiet. So it's not totally clear where it's getting this information from or why it's making things up, because it's supposedly it's sourcing its information from from uh, sites on the web. So it's kind of odd to me that it would just make up information like that. I mean, you would think that if this was a product that Microsoft was releasing, it would at least work to some degree. <laughs> but um, if it's getting this kind of basic thing wrong, you know, even if like 10% of what it says is made up, to me, that means you can't trust the other 90% because you have no idea whether you're reading the 90% that's correct or the 10% that's wrong. So you have to throw the whole thing out. You have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. The, the, you know, for, for like 
more creative or brainstorming or information, um, you know, like synthesizing the beginning of an idea. I think it's still, it's a really useful technology. Yeah, absolutely. It helps you get over that creative hump, can give you some good ideas to work with. Um, Trust, but verify. Trust, but verify. I mean, there's a, there is a non-zero amount of energy involved in verifying. <laughs> That's, in my opinion, almost as high as the amount of energy required to do the research yourself, perhaps. Just to get take another example from the article, it asks Bing Chat about uh, Gap's financial statement, and it asks it to uh, summarize that statement. And it gets the numbers subtly wrong. So, for example... Um, Gap's operating margin, Bing Chat reports it at about 5.9%, uh, but the actual margin is 4.6%. So to me, that's interesting because it's not wildly off, but it's just slightly off. And I wonder where it got that number from. Apparently, 5.9% does not appear in their uh, financial statement at all. So, and it's pretty close to the actual number of 4.6%. So the fact that it's subtly wrong and not wildly inaccurate is somehow even worse to me. You know, Matt, I've got an anecdote from work this week that I think is All right. So Let's hear it. we're working on uh, some blog articles to promote our product. And we want to... Um, you know, rely on sources and be factual and, you know, just try to use um, these generators to synthesize blog posts based off of other long form content we've got, generally interviews and, and um, you know, that sort of thing. So the blog post that it came up with had a, a number of statistics. I think it was, it was around like, something in clinical research um, and it it listed out some percentages around security and passwords and credentials and that sort of thing and and someone in slack asked hey it would be really cool to know where those statistics came from so the the person who is building up this article with the generator asks the generator hey can you cite some sources for these statistics and it said oh sure no problem and then it generates it was like seven or eight sources but they're all 404s Hmm. so so where did the statistics come from right like and it's you know a couple years old right it's like 2021 ish so it's possible those 404 but it's also possible completely made up those urls um, oh, yeah, it has been known to do that, hasn't it? So, you know, verifying, like you're saying, it's not a simple thing. And, and we actually went and looked um, deeply on one of them, went through like PR Newswire, went through Google News, went through, you know, three people searching for this thing for five minutes and nobody could find a trace of truth around it. So, yeah, my articles with a generator that likes to hallucinate things is it not the best idea yeah my my main takeaway from this is that it's 
GPT, chat GPT, GPT 3.5, whatever you want to call it, it's not really good with factual information. It's really good at coming up with ideas, maybe um, <clears throat> getting some ideas for how to write an email, maybe rewording things slightly differently, stuff like that it's pretty good at. But if you need to rely on it for anything factual, um, that's probably a mistake. Speaking of which, um, Google is working on its own AI for uh, for Google search. And wouldn't you know it, it makes mistakes too. But when Google makes mistakes, its shares dive 9% in one day. You know, it's that's only $100 billion in market value. Um, it's only $100 billion. So it's not like it's permanent, but collectively the market was like, oh, uh, Google is behind in this race and doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Well, it does, to me, reveal a bit of a double standard with Microsoft and Google in this space particular, in particular, um, because we have Bing chat over here having existential crises and... Microsoft is doing great. Yeah, their share price is doing, their stock is doing great as far as I know. And Google shows an ad where there's a tiny factual error in the response, which by the way, Bing chat is littered with them and they get hit pretty hard in, uh, in um, as far as their share price. So to me, that's a double standard. And I guess it just goes to show that Google has a lot more to lose here than Microsoft because who really uses Bing to begin with? You know, I've never met anyone who uses Bing. Um, I, I don't actually. Um, <clears throat> I do use Bing. I don't use it directly. I use their API. They have a search API, and you know, Google doesn't have an API for their search. And I just got an email from Microsoft a couple of days ago that they were raising their prices not by, you know, 10, 50% to keep up with inflation. They were like quadrupling their pricing for the uh, Bing search API. I don't know what spurred that on because you don't, it's not like you get access to their Bing chat service through the API, but yeah, just kind of an interesting observation in, in light of all of this, they're, they're raising their, their pricing. That's uh you know, that's, that's interesting that you, you think they're trying to cull off the long tail and just focus on big users with, uh, you know, bigger contract size that's negotiated or. Yeah, I don't know. At first I thought, oh, this must have something to do with chat GPT and, and maybe it does, but, you know, I'm really using it exclusively. I'm using the image search feature. Hmm. Uh, which, as far as I know, doesn't really have anything to do with the uh, GPT stuff. And now that I think about think about it, it might even be better just to use um, an image generating AI instead of uh, instead of um, Bing search, especially as the technology gets more advanced and Microsoft is raising their prices. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe they just don't want to deal with the the smaller guys like myself, so they're kind of just um, Trimming the fat. 
Sorry, Matt. You're um, you need to lose some weight here. Well, um, let's see what else we got going on today. So, enough about AI. Let's talk about JSX. Let's talk. Uh, that's one you. of your favorite topics. So there was a guy on Twitter by the name of, oh no, did he take the tweet down? I think I have a cached copy of it. Maybe he was totally wrong. Uh, it's a guy, ooh, Misko Heri. Again, apologize if I mispronounced the uh, the name. He's, he works at, uh, I believe he's the CTO at Builder.io. They, are, they rolled a custom JavaScript framework called Quick, which is actually quite interesting in its own right. But he posted a Twitter thread today about how um, React, and I guess any library that uses JSX could speed up, could get a, could see a performance bump by compiling the JSX into arrays instead of objects. And this has to do with the idea of the JavaScript VM, how, how, the, how JavaScript looks up keys uh, in objects under the hood. Um, and the fact that some objects, like the objects used in JSX, are quote unquote megamorphic in that their structure is wildly different from each other. So it's not like they all share the same properties. Every kind of React component has different properties. And so the compiler isn't really able to cache the method for looking up those properties in the object because the objects are all different. They're all different shapes. And so apparently you can speed this up by, instead of compiling to objects, you can pile them to arrays. Now, he doesn't really explain why arrays are faster. He does explain why the objects are slow, and it's because it's because of this idea, this polymorphism slash megamorphism, where when the objects are different shapes, it takes longer to look up the keys because the compiler can't cache the lookup path. And so, and so, yeah, this is interesting to me because potentially you can get a pretty significant performance increase just by optimizing the compiler, uh, which is something you don't normally think about with JavaScript because it's an interpreted language, right? And there's not usually a compilation step. Of course, in most modern JavaScript stacks, there is a compilation phase. A lot of people use Babel to transpile ES7 or ES6 features into ES5 or whatever the case may be. And this is maybe just another area where you can get some performance improvements. Where, uh, I guess, you know, just naively looking at this, um, you know, if you could speed up this part of the JavaScript stack by, I think they're saying like it's a two X speed up, um, you know, how, like, what's the effect of that on, on um, say the React ecosystem. So, yeah, I think um, I actually think this guy deleted the entire thread because now every time I try to load it, it's it's not loading. But 
So Dan Abramov, who, if you don't know who he is, he created um, Redux, which is a popular state management library for React. He was later hired by Facebook to work on React. I think he might even be the lead on React at this point. He actually responded to this thread and he made a couple points that I'm going to try to remember because I lost the thread at this point. I can't, I can't load the thread anymore. But one point he mentioned was that this particular, so in the original thread by the guy from uh, Builder, he mentions you can get a 2x speed increase if you make this change. And Abramov in his thread points out that that part of the, uh, in a typical React application, at least at Facebook, that section of computation or that, that kind of section of the app accounts for maybe like 2% of total uh, computation time in the app. So if you double that, you are looking at maybe a 1% improvement in speed. So the practical benefits kind of seem not as amazing as they did at first glance. The other problem that he pointed out was that at some point you have to pass the props object back to the user so that they can use it in their component. So whether you're compiling the JSX to arrays or not, like eventually you need to create JavaScript objects to pass to the user. So whatever performance gain whatever performance gains you get by changing the way the JSX is compiled, you're going to lose that by just transforming them back into objects anyway. Hmm. And maybe that's why he deleted the thread. I don't know. Wow. Um, I mean, you know, to me that just knowing a little bit about the internals and thinking about a different way, um, you know, that kind of stuff's interesting to me. I, I think I work pretty high level and just, mash keys in Ruby all day and don't have to deal with uh, many performance concerns. Um, this, you know, it, it just seems like kind of an interesting space that, you know, if you could, let's say, you know, you're, you're rendering, I don't know, 30 components on a page. Um, if you can speed up part of the rendering aspect of each is, you know, maybe Facebook, their entire application, it speeds it up by, you know, 1%, but maybe there's a way to construct an application to take advantage of something like this, where you could have literally like thousands of components on a page um, and have everything refreshing, uh, you know, 60 FPS. Like, Yeah, there's, I mean, even beyond the, the whole JSX, you know, compilation thing, you can kind of take that information knowing how the JavaScript VM does <clears throat> object key lookup under the hood can help you write more performant uh, code. Usually I, I, I would say not to worry about this kind of thing because it's sort of, um, I, I feel like the results would be pretty negligible in most real world applications. But if you've got, uh, maybe you're writing a node server and you've got a real hot path in the server that you are trying to optimize, you could potentially use this information to uh, change the code a little bit, particularly the, the idea around um, these megamorphic objects. If you have a lot of objects that are all kind of shaped slightly differently, you can maybe tweak the code to 
reduce the number of types of objects so that you have, I forget what the numbers are, but it's I believe it's able to cache four shapes at a time. And then there's another threshold of like 1024 shapes where it goes even slower. And so knowing that information, you can, if you're making it, let's say you're making a game in JavaScript. So the, there's a uh, use case where the performance tends to really matter a lot. You can kind of use this information to your advantage to craft some slightly more performant code. Good stuff, Matt. Thank you for the insights into that. <laughs> no problem. I'm not an expert at all on this. I just read the article this morning. So, but if you're interested, we'll have more. Uh, we'll, I'll try to reference the tweet in the show notes, but I, I believe he, he either deleted the tweet or Twitter uh, accidentally deleted the tweet somehow, but he, he posted a blog article nonetheless. So I'll link to that. So next story I want to talk about is about CoreJS. Have you heard about CoreJS? Have you even heard of CoreJS? Right no, now? no, I have no, uh, outside of seeing this article, I'd never, never even heard of CoreJS. I never heard of it either. And I did a quick check on my application and sure enough, it is using CoreJS. So, and I think that's, something a lot of people probably are, are probably in the same boat where they never heard of it, but their, their code base is using it in one way or another. Um, so this is a open source JavaScript library. It's a polyfill library for those that don't know. Um, there are several different versions of JavaScript. Older browsers only support older versions. And so if you want to use the newer features of the newer versions of JavaScript, you have to add something called a polyfill to your code, which adds in the newer uh, functions from the newer standard library. So for example, you can use uh, standard library functions from ES6 in browsers that only support ES5. And this apparently, this is one of these like shadow NPM packages that like nobody's heard of, but like 80% of the web is using. Yeah, I think and his statistics, you know, diving through this, like it was it was more than half of the Alexa top 100 to use it. It's got nine billion uh, downloads on NPM. Uh, it's got, I don't know, you know, it's like this thing like runs the Internet. Nobody knows about it. There's just some underground plumbing that some yeah. some guys been volunteering to support. Um, and it sounds like it's just a, you know, it's like the lone dev. Um, uh, yeah. Drop running. I mean, it's even, it's even sadder than that. This guy, he's been working on this thing for like 10 years at this point. He's super passionate about the product. He it's a thankless job from the looks of it. Not only is it a thankless job, but there's, he's been the target of a lot of ire on the internet for various things that maybe he, is doing or isn't doing. Uh, and yeah, it's it's used not just over 50% of the top 1,000 websites, but when you dig into subpages, it's like over 80%. And he's not getting paid for this. And in fact, not only is he not getting paid, he has turned down job offers 
because he if he took the job, he wouldn't have enough time to work on this project. And so the question is, why? Like, why do this? Why do all this work for free? Why put up with all this stuff? You know, he's not getting paid. He's, I mean, if you read the full article, it's, it's really a sad story. He, he, he moved back to Russia so that he could afford to live on the pittance of salary he was getting from donations. He got into a car accident. He, he was sued. He ended up, ended up going to jail. I mean, all this crazy stuff happened to him over the years while he was working on this, putting in, um, I, again, I, I have no way of verifying this, but putting in like hundreds of hours a month on this library that he's not getting paid to develop and is being used by some of the largest corporations in the world. And he's still working on it. And the question is why, like why at this point, why bother? You know, you get a passion project, you're, you're getting something out of it. I mean, you know, the whole world is benefiting from the work you're doing. So there's intrinsically got to be some good feelings that come out of it. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. Something I haven't really thought of there's, I think a lot of these, well, the, the thing is, like, this is another thing he touches on in the article. A lot of people don't even know that he's the creator and maintainer of this library because it's used primarily in Babel, which is a compiler for JavaScript. And so most people think that it's just like part of the Babel project. Hmm. And they have no idea that this guy is like pretty much maintaining it by himself and has been for years. So is he even, is it like, Okay, maybe he's doing it for the fame and the glory, but he's not really getting that either. In his words, he's doing it to make the web a better place, I think. That's paraphrasing. But he's doing it for the JavaScript community, quote-unquote community. Like, I don't know what that really means. But, yeah, maybe there's an ego component to this that I'm not getting. But I've seen this story, similar story to this pop up every now and then where you have a a lone developer working on this small or maybe it's a large open source project that is supporting like half the web and they just lose their minds <laughs> and <laughs> and they take down half the web with them yeah i had mixed feelings about open source it wasn't too long ago that something like that happened there was a an npm package that just got pulled and uh you know, it was yeah. almost like unapologetically, maybe there was, I can't remember the name of it, but I think there was like a, something in a, in a GitHub issue and the developer was like, oh, you know what? Um, yeah, I'm just going to yank it. And yeah, I think it was left pad. It, yeah, it's just some, like some just like, that's not even in the language. Someone wrote a left pad library and all <laughs> right. after yeah. it goes down. Um, right. So, I mean, this is a particularly... Uh, relevant problem for JavaScript, I think, and NPM, but it affects other ecosystems as well. You know, you know what? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, you know, you, sometimes you just, you just got to know. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyways, go ahead. This, this, uh, yeah, this article kind of prompted me to like audit my, <laughs> my package.json file and, and my like yarn, like 
package.lock file. And yeah, I found core.js in there. It's like a dependency of a dependency of a dependency. And so that kind of thing makes me just want to like rip half the dependencies out of my package file. But yeah, as far as like the implications for this on open source in general, <clears throat> I think there's this idea that open source software is this noble cause and by developing open source software, you're, you are making the world a better place. And maybe that, that is true. A lot of people benefit like, you know, small guys like myself, uh, independent bootstrap companies. I rely on a lot of open source software and I certainly wouldn't be able to make the kinds of things I'm making today without it. But there's this kind of dark side to it too, where for example, with CoreJS, where you have one guy who's just kind of like holding up half the internet and he's barely able to scrape by, you know, he, he, he can't even really afford to feed his family at this point. So that's the other side to the coin. It's a thankless job. And, and is it making the world a better place? Maybe, but a lot of, most of the benefit, I would say, most of the people benefiting from this are these large corporations, right? Like the, the, the websites that are in the top 1000, the little guys are benefiting too, but a lot of big corporations are getting a lot of work for free. You sound a little torn on this one. Yeah. I mean, well, I'll save the rest of my thoughts for, for another episode. Let's move on. Sounds good. What else we got here? So here was a uh, post on Hacker News. This guy asks, are people considering moving off of fly.io? So for those that don't know, fly.io, this is a newish platform as a service uh, in the same vein as Heroku. And for those out of the loop, Heroku was kind of the first company that do, to do something like this, where you can just get push your Rails repo and it would just spin up a server for you automatically. Like you hardly had to configure anything and all of a sudden you've got your Rails app is live in production. And it was very turnkey, very slick, very nice developer experience. It was bought pretty quickly, in fact, by Salesforce, which then proceeded to completely gut the team and neglect the project. It's still a great product, I think. I mean, I still use it because it, it, I think it's still the best available. But a lot of people are kind of worried that its days are numbered and Salesforce is going to eventually wind the service down. So they're looking at alternatives. And one of the alternatives that was recommended quite a bit not too long ago was fly.io. And so it's kind of surprising to me to see that people are looking to move off of it already. And apparently this guy had an outage that has lasted at least 24 hours. And the status page is like not accurately reflecting the downtime and he's super frustrated. I think there's other people on the thread that have had similar experiences. So, you know, maybe it's not quite time to move off of Heroku just yet. Uh, you know, just thinking about this, like every 
platform I've ever hosted a server on has gone down. Mm -hmm. I've, I've hosted servers out of wire closets and the power has gone down or the hard drive has crashed or somebody has gone in and pulled a cable out of something um, or a power supply fails. Like, you know, you're hosting your own thing. It's going to go down. AWS yeah. early on, people didn't trust it because it was going down all the time. There are all these service outages, all these weird glitchy things. Um, it, you know, it just, it wasn't reliable. Like stuff mm -hmm. goes down it, and it still goes down less so than it did. Um, Heroku, you know, it, it kind of sits on top of AWS. So it's, you know, it's another it some outages. It has had some outages. I've had, I don't think I've had any, no, okay, I actually have uh, seen like a half hour to an hour outage, which, you know, mm. if, you're, if all your eggs are in one basket, um, that's yeah. not good. Yeah, so. I can't remember uh, an outage like that affecting me in the past, because I have a, a couple apps on Heroku, and I can't recall the last time I they had an outage that really affected me. So this one guy, one guy in the comments wrote, I used it a year ago and had and had to move off. Uh, just too many errors, uh, seemingly lost deployments, and needing in general to reconnect or turn things off and on to get them to work. Uh, definitely felt very beta. Uh, that is uh, like beta software, not beta mail. Final straw, though, really was testing DB. I had a $40 per month dedicated server, and I spun up their recommended few node cluster for Postgres. Query response time was something like five times faster for the dedicated server versus their similarly priced setup. I tried upgrading the top of the line, still much slower, and at that point, many multiples more expensive. And I mean, Heroku has this problem too, where they're just like so expensive compared to hosting on AWS or DigitalOcean or Azure or whatever. No, don't even talk to me about the HIPAA compliant containers that start at three grand a month. Give me a break. Oh yeah, I I was doing some contract work for uh, for a it was like a healthcare related company, and the the Heroku bill for what we were building was like, and the amount of users that we were supporting was like unbelievable to me. It's craziness. Well, we'll keep an eye on this um, this story, and if anything else comes up, we will definitely cover it on the podcast, but. I know. I feel feel like I'm gonna stay on Heroku at least for the time being. Uh, yeah, same here. It works. It gets the job done. It takes five minutes to set up, mm -hmm. and um, you know, it's got a cool. Uh, it's got a cool logo. I like. I like the theme. Oh yeah, for sure. It's it's a really cool looking uh, service. So Google has a fully homomorphic encryption compiler. Um, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, homomorphic, uh, homo being something you can't say in the NBA morphic being it's, it changes shape so often you can't see what it is. Hmm. This is a, it's a technology that has been around for about a generation and it allows you to do work on encrypted objects without knowing what they are and then returning that the result to somebody else. That's so, pretty crazy. 
you know, I mean, like, what kind of um, operations are we talking about here? Can it do any kind of operation at all, or is it just like mathematical operations? Yeah, it's um, uh, you know, the one the one caveat I will throw out is that it is relatively slow. Um, it's it's mm. it's a phenomenal technology, but it's it's pretty slow. So, to give you an example. Um, and part of the reason of the slowness we can get into has to do with the way that the compiler takes the C code and converts it into um, uh, encryption keys per bit, and then takes the code and converts it into a circuit diagram only using, I think it's uh, it's like ANDs. ANDs, NANDs, and, and XORs, I think, are the only gates it uses. So mm-hmm. it creates this like wildly large um, piece of software to do something relatively simple. If we're going to add two numbers together uh, on a modern laptop, that's going to take about seven seconds to run. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, seven seconds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the, the cool okay. thing though, is that if you're if you're concatenating um, a couple thirty two bit strings, it takes about seven seconds to run. Hmm. Okay, that sounds like there's some black magic going on to make this work. And um, yeah, the, the the part you mentioned about the logic gates, I know, you know. With any program, really, it all comes down to math or logic gates, turning on and off, that kind of thing. So I would imagine that, does this does this require special hardware, or this just runs on any CPU? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, there, this article that uh, we're talking about was on HN uh, the last week, and the, um, the library... It works on like standard um, systems, so you can get it running on Windows. Anything that supports LLVM, so you can get it running on Mac. You can get it running on normal, normal Unixes. On like weird, weird, you know, if you've got some like strange Gen two kernel running on, I don't know, like some strange piece of architecture, it might. LLVM might not be happy with you, but in general, um, yeah, you can run it on a on a laptop. Can I run this on my Raspberry Pi? Um, I think you could. I think it would. Uh, I think it would probably work. Um, it might be a little slower than seven seconds per add operation. Just like you right. Know. So, yeah, I kind of anticipated that, that answer, but. This has, you say this has been around for a while. Have they been able to make any kind of progress on the uh, performance over the years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it used to take like a day to add two numbers. Um, hmm. Maybe it was multiple days. So, you know, it has sped up. Um, it's, you know, it, the, the interesting thing is that it's not a hardware problem. It's a fundamental physics problem of, hmm. uh, and I don't know the full gist of it, but it's it's in trying to map um, information theory onto hardware uh, logic gates. And gotcha. I don't know. It's it's crazy crazy mathy. Um, there's improvement in it. 
Um, but the the really cool thing why I get really excited about this is, you know, let's say it's like a Moore's law progression, and it's going to take another generation for this to to speed up in whatever way. You wind up having this this um, ability to compute ubiquitously on any device with any workload and not worry about any trust issues. I can send yeah. you uh, my web server and you can run my web server and generate out pages. And I can know that you're not, um, you know, nefariously inserting things into the page. Like there's yeah, a that's pretty exciting, totally decentralized, distributed, cryptographically secure web that doesn't, uh, you know, fall into the, the current um, paradigm of a company that owns a data center on every continent. Yeah, that's really, that's really pretty exciting stuff. I wonder what the impl implications would be for uh, like data security. I know we've seen in the past few years instances of ransomware attacks increasing and places like hospitals and schools where I guess the, the hackers get a hold of some data and they say, hey, or maybe they just lock up the system. I actually don't know what the most common uh, technique is, but this kind of uh, distributed computing, totally everything is totally encrypted. I feel like that would be a huge step forward in securing our computer systems because more and more, everything is just stored digitally. Everything is done digitally. And these systems are usually quite old. They're usually quite insecure and they apparently are easy to break into and allow people to hold these companies ransom. Yeah. And we're talking about, you know, Fly.io having an outage, Heroku having an outage. What if it's like, it's more like how TCP works where stuff just routes around outages. So mm -hmm. you've got this like secure blockchain hosted uh, computing container and someone dynamically routes to it through uh, like a name coin router. And it's just, you know, it's provided by all sorts of nodes all over the place. Maybe there's some kind of financial incentive. And, uh, you know, if a node is down, it just routes to the next node. Like there's no, no worry about yeah. stuff going down. No worry about like encrypted backups all disappearing because they were all in one cabinet or you know, mm. ransomware wrapped around them. Like, no, there's a copy over here, copy over there, and it's all encrypted. And, and, um, yeah, know. super resilient, super fault tolerant. That's a really exciting stuff. I had never heard of this before. So I'm interested to follow this and see where it goes. The other thing I'm kind of interested in is you mentioned it's not really a hardware limitation, it's more of a, um, information theory limitation. I do wonder if specialized hardware could be developed to improve the performance of this kind of thing or not. I mean, we've seen, I have seen anyway, with AI in particular, if you radically change the medium for computation, you can get yeah. some huge performance improvements. I can't get into the specifics of AI, but this, this uh, team out of some university, I can't re recall which one, they were able to design sort of a new CPU or 
I, I don't remember exactly which component it was. Maybe it was the uh, memory. But um, by really changing how that worked, they were able to optimize for the very specific task of training uh, these language models. And so I wonder if you couldn't get similar results with this, given that we're working with some very primitive uh, operations like uh, logic gates here. The uh, the one hint coming out of the the, uh, the bootstrap paper, uh, they're talking about the the shape of the logic gate network being um, very wide and very shallow, mm. and so you know it's something that's meant to be parallelized and optimized. And um, you know if like it'd be kind of weird, but you know building an ASIC chip. Uh, specifically for one program i mean you know we've got like aes chips um we've yeah. got uh you know mp4 chips we've got like very specialized chips for these widely used algorithms so yeah i don't think that's that's too far out of the realm of possibility disclaimer i have no idea what i'm talking about <laughs> well knowing google this will probably die in a couple of years anyway so it was fun while it lasted uh, with that, I think we are just about out of time. So thanks everyone for listening and uh, we will see you next time. Take care. <laughs>